Hi, I'm Mark Olson, and this is The Real, a podcast where culture and entertainment meet. I write about movies here at The Times, and a frequent topic of conversation among my colleagues on the entertainment staff is how tough it is for any of us to just keep up with the relentless wave of content between movies and TV. So this show is about the stuff that we're watching and how we watch it. Old habits die hard. The Oscars showed it could manage without a host, thank you very much, but the Academy can't quite quit sentimental stories of racial reconciliation like Best Picture winner Green Book. Still, the recognition of films like Roma, Black Panther, and Black Klansman signals that real change may yet have arrived, while also highlighting ongoing tensions within the Academy itself. We'll have more in a moment. And if you're looking for further intel on that Lady Gaga, Bradley Cooper performance, stick around for the second part of the episode when reporters Amy Kaufman and Jen Yamato talk about what it was like to be in the room when it was happening, with eyewitness accounts from inside the theater, the lobby bars, and backstage. Let's listen in. And we're here today to sort of do a final post-mortem wrap-up one last time, talking about this year's Oscars. And for that, I'm joined by my colleagues... Mary McNamara. I'm Glenn Whip, offering a preemptive apology for anyone who took my Oscar picks to their <laughs> pools this year. And uh, phoning in, we also have... Justin Fang. Happy to be here. And now, before we get to the Oscars, Mary, on the day that we're recording this, you just published a really exciting story that I think a lot of people are talking about and would love to hear about. Emma Thompson, the much-beloved actress, recently dropped out of a production that she was going to be a part of through Skydance Animation, and you actually were able to get a copy of the letter of resignation that she sent in. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Like, what's in that letter? Okay, so Emma Thompson was supposed to be in the Skydance animation film Luck. And after John Lasseter was hired at Skydance, I guess she, according to her reps, she like immediately wanted to get out of the movie and talked, started talking to them about like how she could do this and, you know, what that would look like. And uh, so she she officially exited the movie um, January 20th. And then it was reported like last week, I think, but she was not giving any comment. And I had asked if we could talk. And yesterday her rep gave me the letter that she had sent Skydance after she had pulled out of the movie. And in the letter, she basically details all of the questions that she and every other reasonable human being had about the hiring of John Lasseter so quickly after he had been basically booted from Disney and Pixar, where he had reigned as a king for so many years. And it's just this like an astonishing move by an A-list star. You know, it's in my mind, like the first big, statement walking from the Me Too movement. I mean, there have been a lot of great statements, a lot of super brave women, a lot of people coming forward and doing things like creating task force. We have Time's Up formed. All of these things are really terrific and absolutely important. But at the end of the day, Hollywood runs on money and star power. So to have an A-list star basically pull out and say directly, it's because I will not work for John Lasseter. That's a huge statement, and it's something that I think is going to be looked at as a template for other men who have been accused of sexual harassment. Many are trying to like sort of put a toe in the water to see, should I come back? What would my role be? And I think that this is like sort of going to send a chilling effect to them because she just said, no, I'm, I'm not doing it. Emma Thompson, of course, is an Oscar-winning screenwriter. And uh, first of all, Mary, the letter that she wrote, it is the most like Emma Thompson-y. Yes. Emma, like you really can't help but read the letter in the voice of 
Yes, Emma Thompson. Absolutely. I mean, like I have it right here. It's full of. I mean, she really just sort of goes through her thought processes, and it's like you know, if a man has been touching women inappropriately for decades, why would a woman want to work for him if the only reason he's not touching them inappropriately now is that it says in his contract that he must behave professionally? Because that was something when he was hired, David Ellison sent out this big email reassuring the very upset staff at Skydance that it was going to be fine because it was in his contract that he had to behave professionally, which was just like the most ludicrous thing in the whole world, that somebody at this level was sort of bound to not sexually harass people because it was in his contract. It's like, what are you talking about? It's in everyone's contract all the time. It's boilerplate. It was in his contract at Disney and Pixar, and that didn't help. But Glenn, I think, you know, remembering the fact that Emma Thompson is an Oscar-winning screenwriter that I'm interested in trying to transition into talking about this year's Oscars, <laughs> they in some ways both were extremely political and yet in some ways perhaps in like more of like a tacit or an implied way. I think what we drew from some of the wins, the fact that it was a historic night for diversity of the winners, yet at the same time, some of the films that did win, in particular with Green Book getting Best Picture, there was a lot of people that there was some amount of controversy and upset about that. For you, what were sort of like the essentially the politics of the night. What do you think was the statement being made by the Academy this year with the wins at the Oscars? Well, I mean, there's there's a couple of levels to look at. There's a industry level, which is not yet Netflix. It's not your time yet easy. I mean, you know, leading up to the Oscars, I mean, you had people like Steven Spielberg, a lot of old guard Hollywood. Spielberg talking publicly, like at the Cinema Audio society dinner, awards dinner, where you got an award. And, and I'm paraphrasing here, but basically just saying Satan's at the door. <laughs> Do not let the devil in. Again, that's paraphrasing. But I mean, speaking very publicly about the theatrical experience, the purity of the theatrical experience. And last year, I mean, he did say, if you're watching it on a screen, okay, give it an Emmy, but it does not deserve an Oscar. And you so, I mean, that's that politics hurt Roma a lot more than I thought it would, because I, at the end of the day, had a hard time. I mean, throughout the award season, I had a hard time picturing a movie like Green Book, which I saw as such a throwback to, let's just say, 30 years ago, Driving Miss Daisy. Spike Lee made a very tacit connection that night, too. How could that movie win Best Picture in 2019? And in fact, here is Spike Lee backstage the night of the awards. I'm snake bit. I mean, every time somebody's driving somebody, I lose. <laughs> <laughs> but they, they, they changed the seated arrangement. And Justin, you wrote quite powerfully about Green Book and what for you the Academy is sort of saying by choosing that as the best picture and what that means. Can you talk a little bit about that? Like, what to you is the meaning of Green Book as the best picture of the year? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a pretty despicable choice. Um, And I think that, you know, and I wrote about this in the piece, but you had Black Panther, you had Black Klansman. You had, um, it wasn't nominated, but you had If Beale Street Could Talk, you know, Widows, Sorry to Bother You, and then kind of on down the line, really interesting movies about race, about Black identity, made, incidentally, by Black filmmakers. So to me, there's something very, very selective and almost cruel 
in light of the competition, the vastly superior competition, that they went with Green Book. I mean, Bohemian Rhapsody won more of the night, but there seemed to be this almost sense in which Bohemian Rhapsody and Green Book, in the major categories they were up for, they seemed pretty unstoppable, almost. And I think with Green Book, it's a movie that pretends to give you this somewhat hard-hitting, just hard-hitting enough portrait of what it was like in the segregated South. You had civil rights icon John Lewis present a montage to the movie, and it's like it was almost kind of like a throw. Who can argue with that? You know, John Lewis has seen more and experienced and done more to advance the cause of African-Americans than certainly any of us or ever will know or ever will. But and he can like whatever damn movie he pleases, in my opinion. I still think it's a really dishonest movie. And I think that it gives you enough of a sense of what it was like back then to also then give you what it's really about, which is just this pile of feel-good uplift. I think Black Panther is a feel-good movie in the sense that I felt great after watching it but it's also got a lot of ideas to it and makes you think about a lot of things. So I just think that with Best Picture, the Academy increasingly wants something that's just tidier. You know, that maybe that's unfair because I think they've had some very good winners in the past few years, like Moonlight, like Spotlight. But I think there's something about Green Book which just presented everything in just the right package, even though it seemed so retrograde. Mary, you wrote something the, the night of the awards about trying to sort of like, in some ways, take a step back and look at the movies that were recognized by the Oscars in their totality. The idea that there was some progress that was being made there. And so maybe regardless of how one feels about Green Book, you're trying to kind of take the good and the bad there. Can you talk a little bit about kind of what you wrote on the night of the Oscars? Well, yeah, I mean, there was definitely, I mean, no matter how you sliced it, there was kind of a two-step forward one step back or one step not moving kind of thing. The telecast opened with Regina King winning and then Ruth Carter winning and then uh, Hannah Beachler, I hope I got that right, winning for Black Panther. The last two, it was the first time that a Black person had won in those categories, which was very exciting. And they were great speeches and the women had written their speeches and they were, it was powerful and they were emotional. And so you just, it just felt like a very different Oscars. So there were like these moments, like with Roma, I mean, yeah, I know there were some people who thought it was going to win Best Picture. I would not have chosen it as Best Picture personally, but I am not a voting member of the Academy, so it doesn't matter. But the idea that a movie that was in black and white and Spanish and Mexicali, you know, a subtitled movie won, you know, cinematography and director and was up for Best Picture. I mean, that's pretty astonishing. I mean, that it launched itself out of the foreign category, that shows a huge change. And that you saw with the short films, you saw a lot of women on stage, you saw women directors, you saw women producers, and then you would have Bohemian Rhapsody wins for best film editing. And everybody's like, what? (laughs) Whether you like that film or not, it was not particularly well edited. So it was kind of, sorry, sorry, Oscar winner. So that was really odd. There was a nostalgia. You know, that's the only thing that I can think why everybody was so thrilled with Bohemian Rhapsody is that, you know, how many generations of Americans have grown up listening to Queen. You know, it's like the backdrop of your first everything. And then Green Book felt very nostalgic. I mean, I don't have as strong feelings as Glenn and Justin have. I mean, I think I do agree that given Black Klansman and Black Panther were both, to my mind, superior films. So that was stinging, a stinging message. But, I mean, I didn't hate Green Book. I thought it was a missed opportunity. I thought that there were some moments in the film where they could have dealt with white privilege. 
Glenn, do you think that in fact that the Oscars this year, that it's a sign of the Academy in transition and maybe even in some way the Academy at war with itself? That the fact, the idea that there's a new group of members who maybe have different voting tastes, if nothing else, and that there is some sort of essentially a generational transition that's happening within the Academy itself? I mean, you could certainly read it that way. It feels that way. I mean, you can only guess, but I mean, it was just a really odd whiplash that Mary just described throughout the evening where you saw these awards that you just could not explain. Well, you can. I mean, the editing for Bohemian Rhapsody is just awful, but it's it's a lot of editing, you know, so that's what voters responded to. And to speak to what Mary just said, I mean, I talked to so many people who love that movie who had no idea who Queen was. I mean, who had a vague idea. Really? They've heard these songs in the background at malls or whatever, <laughs> or, you know, on commercials, but really didn't have much of an idea of the band. But it conveyed just the sort of, um, it puts you right in the middle of performance and pr- conveyed the excitement of performance. And people got swept away like that couple that I interviewed that had seen it 24 times. And then they emailed me after the story ran. They'd gone to see it a 25th time. And for them, for the wife who did not know anything about Queen, Rami Malek was Freddie Mercury. And the fact that the movie was a complete load of um, hooey um, did not matter. The movie was Queen's story. It became Queen's story. Academy at War with itself, I mean, that's an easy way to explain it. So many new members, so many great awards. Olivia Coleman, yay. But favorite only won one out of the 10. And you come back to Green Book winning Best Picture, which Justin, what'd you say? Worse since Crash? I mean, it fits in with a lot of mediocre movies that have won since Crash, too. There are a handful of Best Picture winners that I just have no desire to ever go back and watch again that have won since Crash. King's Speech, English Patient, probably two off the top of my head. So... Maybe we just got too excited that the Oscars were changing. They're still the Oscars. And I mean, so much of the Oscars is the next day sitting around or that night sitting and complaining and bitching like, oh, my God, I can't believe they just did that. But but they are changing. If you look at the list of Best Picture nominees, it was the most diverse list that I've seen. And not just, we talked about this last time, not just about the topics, but just the types of movies. And I do think, you know, if all those new women hadn't been invited into the Academy, there is no way that uh, short doc on menstruation would have won. I'm just telling you that right now. And to that idea of how the Academy is changing, again, here is Spike Lee backstage after the awards. Without April Rain, hashtag White and the former president of the Academy Award Motion Picture Sciences, Sherwin Isaacs, I wouldn't be here tonight. They opened up the Academy to make the Academy look more like America. It's more diverse. So that's why three black women, if I counted correctly, won Oscars. That would not have happened without Oscar So White and Cheryl Boone Isaacs. Facts. Like my brother Jay-Z says, facts. Justin, go ahead. Yeah, speaking to just diversity, you know, the fact that this was the most diverse set of winners, too, with seven black winners and 15 female honorees. Mary lists a lot of them, Ruth Carter and Hannah Beekler and Peter Ramsey, director of Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, co-director that is one of three, Spike Lee winning his first competitive Oscar, and Kevin Wilmot is one of his co-writers on Black Klansmen. And, you know, it's interesting to me how sometimes 
in a way, the optics maybe not matching the story so much. I mean, when Rami Malek won, you know, he identified this is a movie about a gay man and someone of immigrant descent. And, and, you know, it's funny, I saw some tweeted something like, oh, if it was about a gay man, somebody should have let the screenwriters know. He then spoke to his own status as his parents were, were immigrants from Egypt. And so, you know, he, that is Rami Malek, totally validly, of course, owning his part of the diversity, the inclusion narrative. And Mahershala Ali, who is probably the best thing about Green Book, winning his second Oscar in like three years or two years for supporting actor. And that's absolutely a credit. But it's like diversity is a very messy, untidy business. And so the numbers speak very much to the Academy's credit in terms of how many people of color and how many women they are honoring. My friend, the critic Guy Lodge, has a theory which is that Olivia Coleman won in part because of the growing international membership of the Academy, because Olivia Coleman, who was not very visible on the U.S. circuit and did not do a lot of press because she's busy shooting The Crown, she is very, very well known in the U.K. And Glenn Close, of course, is a national treasure, but her cause, now seven-time Oscar loser, it's an interesting idea that that win that nobody saw coming, which was for me the most shocking and also thrilling moment of the whole evening, you could see that as a sign of the expanding voting membership, possibly. I think it's just probably more people saw the favorite. And Olivia Coleman, I mean, even though she isn't as well-known as a film star, she's well-known in the States as a television star. I mean, people know who she is. But one thing I do want to say, and it's like the Oscars have been surrounded by controversy for the last five years in a way that it never was. I mean, the controversy would, would be something like, has Jack Palance lost his mind? Like, that would be the controversy. Or was Billy Crystal as good this year as he was last year? That would be the controversy. Now, I mean, just that we're having these conversations, that film is giving us this opportunity to have these conversations, that people feel so strongly about these things. For me, it's like almost worth it to have Green Book win so that people can write about why they're so angry about it or talk about why they're so angry about it. Because I feel like then you get to issues that people don't think about and you start talking about point of view and you start talking about stereotypes and you start talking about the purpose of film and the purpose of emotion in film. To me, that's the best service that any awards show can do to its art, which is to have people feel strongly enough to talk about art at these multiple levels, these big, huge social levels, and then the granular level of, you know, I can't even talk at the granular level because I'm too stupid, but just sort of like about editing or about cinematography or about like point of view and in this scene, why is this person dominant and that person isn't. And that is so subtle that you wouldn't even think about it until someone like Justin points it out. And I think that that is really important. But see, that's, that's, I almost, that's your half I, I full. I almost agree with Mary 100%. <laughs> oh, I wish Green Book had lost. And then we could have just run the piece saying Green Book would have been the worst. Best <laughs> but you wouldn't crash. have done it. You wouldn't, you wouldn't have done <laughs> I that. Well, I remember I saying to you, Justin, on, <laughs> I would that outcome. Justin, I remember <laughs> saying to you on Sunday, you've probably never regretted not being able to hit delete quite so strongly is when you, you know, you had to hit publish instead on your Green Book story. Our editor, Julia Turner, um, wanted me to have that ready to go. And it, you know, kind of, an, I'd never done anything like that before. And it is funny, just as working journalists, when you spend a lot of time on a piece, you want it out there. And yet, uh, yeah, I was hoping I wouldn't have to use it, certainly. <laughs> you know, I wrote the front page story about Hillary Clinton's historic win. So I have oh, no sympathy Mary. for any of y'all. <laughs> it's like... And when you get the spike notice that goes when they finally kill a story out of the system, it was heartbreaking. Oh, 
And I want to be sure that we talk just a little bit about the actual show itself, which there had been a lot of conversation about leading up to the Academy Awards. Glenn, how do you feel these sort of hostless Oscars went? Like, how was it as a show? The show seemed like it flew by, which was very exciting because it gave me more time to file before my (laughs) deadline. I mean, that's the kind of those are the kinds of things I think about when I'm watching the show. I love the shallow performance, which I was touting last week. Um, (laughs) I think they did it it for you. I think it came through and I love the um, way they staged it. There is something so lovely about the perspective of watching them get up from their seats and walk onto the stage. And then there is just this intimacy in that performance that was interesting because Bradley Cooper was performing as Bradley Cooper and not as Jackson Maine. So it gave it a little bit different dynamic, too. It was odd seeing that song sung with him in a tux. The song itself is just this conversation between two people, and they really made you feel that. Like, the memes from that performance will live forever. (laughs) Mary, if I can ask you to sort of, like, put your former TV critic hat back on, did you find that not having a host, it did seem like it refocused the emphasis onto the awards themselves and the speeches, that those were the things that sort of, like, took center stage at the show more than anything else? And just the simple pacing of the show, it did move very quickly. And do you feel like that was sort of the impact of not having a host? It was kind of hilarious because, like, as we were riding up to the week before, you would have thought that, like, the Oscars was going to break television. It was going to be, like, the end of the world, that people were going to get up there and, like, drool and not be able to do anything. But it was very much an Oscars telecast. I thought that, you know, I didn't think the host was missed that much since the Billy Crystal era. Um, We haven't had really knock em sock em hosts. I was really happy to not have to go out into the studio audience or have some big shtick thing happen in the middle of it that I just really used to irritate me, even when it was like Hugh Jackman suddenly launching a dance number. The set worked beautifully on television because the floor was done really well, the way they were able to light up the back. They had those umbrellas when Bette Miller came out. People who you don't normally see as Oscar presenters were doing Oscar presenting. There were a lot of really great pairings of the presenters. They all seemed very prepared because that's something that drives me insane is that the presenters come out. These are movie stars. They don't do live television and they just stare at the monitor and they say these jokes like and it's just terrible and embarrassing and they all seemed very lively and they all seem engaged and justin i I, to some extent want to give you the the last word here i'm wondering in thinking about this year's awards what sort of a future do you think it points to towards the academy like seeing the way in which it feels like this is an academy in transition what to you is sort of like in thinking you know heaven help us and thinking about oscars 2020 (laughs) Where do you think this points us? As much as I didn't like the way it ended, I came away from this year's Oscars feeling uncharacteristically optimistic, actually, because it was a very good set of nominees, I think, with a few terrible aberrations. But I do think that this year the Academy did realize its intended goal of a set of Best Picture nominees, for example, that does reflect a very broad swath of filmmaking and um, and of types of stories that are being told. Did they do a 100% great job? No, but they almost got there. I do think the Green Book win, within five minutes, it had not aged well. You know, 
I'm hopeful that the Academy is kind of on its toes now a little bit in terms of what it does and what its what its image is. So I think that's you know, that's that's not all great, but I think that's mostly to the good. And so with that, we'll wrap up this part of our conversation. Mary, where can people find you online? At Mary Mac TV. Glenn? At Glenn Whip, two N's, two P's. Justin? At Justin C. Chang. And we are going to take a short break, and then we're going to be back with Times film reporters Amy Kaufman and Jen Yamato talking about what it was like to be in the room as the Oscars were going on. We'll be right back. I'm joined by my colleagues, Jen Yamato. And I'll never love. And calling in from Parts Unknown, we have Amy Kaufman. Amy, thank you for joining us. <laughs> calling in from my success <laughs> for you, Mark. I, my devotion knows no bounds. But now I wanted to talk to the two of you because you were physically there. You were present at the Dolby Theater. Never for- love again for the Oscars themselves. Jen, I think this was your first time in the backstage I don't position. know why you're ignoring my gaga-ness over here. I'm still, yes, I was backstage for the first time and um, that was very fun and interesting and different from watching at home, different from being in the theater. And I have to say, obviously, I've been singing Star is Born songs ever since. Well, we're gonna we're gonna get there. We're gonna get there. But I'm gonna make gonna make you talk about a little bit more yeah. about the show. How, when you're backstage, how chaotic is it? Like, is it a well-run machine, or is there a lot of like loose it's ends a and chaotic, well-run machine? Amy knows this because she's been backstage too. It's like there are very few journalists who are allowed backstage. We are waiting in the wings, stage right, steps away from the the winners and presenters coming right off the stage after they win their awards. They're frazzled they're elated it's a lot of emotions and then they're they're ushered right on through the backstage past where donna gigliotti is sitting at her monitor to a thank you cam that's set up for the academy which is also smart because it gives people who don't have enough time to, to say all their thanks on stage they can continue that backstage and then they are ushered out to photo ushered out to the interview room and then back to their seats so it's a lot of frenzy but Jen, explain like where you're standing. Like when you see the winners on TV go off the stage, like Jen's basically right there. Yeah. 10 feet away, there's a ramp right off stage. They come out of the curtains that separate the stage and the wings. And we are right there. Along with like a dozen photographers, like probably 100 crew members. It's a lot of people in a really confined space. And our job as backstage press is to kind of observe as much as we possibly can as flies on the wall. And Amy, for you this year, being out in the theater, what was the mood like? I felt like when I was seeing the dispatches you were sending in through the course of the show, it felt a little up and down. Like it seemed like the mood was kind of volatile. Like it was changing through the course of the night. Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to lie. Like I've been in the... So basically, when you have a ticket to the show um, and you're a journalist, you sit in your seat and then in the commercial breaks, you can go out to the bar, which is different than other award shows like the Golden Globes, where, you know, there's tables and everyone stays in one room the whole time, basically. At the Oscars, if you want to go to the bathroom or you want to, like, get a drink, you have to actually leave the show. And in the lobby, you can't hear the sound. So people either are like deciding actively to just not watch the Oscars and be at the bar or they get out there and they're like, wait, I can't hear anything. Like I saw Alice and Janney see <laughs> on the monitor that she was missing Bette Midler's performance and she like rushed back yeah. in. So there wasn't that much activity in the bar this year. I was like, I mean, Emma Stone and Rachel Weisz, like they really held down out there. They were the ones I saw most 
frequently chilling. It was like them and their director of the favorite, Yorgos Lanthimos, just like really hanging out. So I think when Olivia Coleman won at the end of the night, that's partially why we saw so much surprise, just because I'm guessing like based on their hangout activity, they weren't really thinking maybe they had that much of a shot. They were just kind of like chilling outside the, the ceremony. It helps to give you more bar time if you're attending, if your category is over early. So they leave the theater, they go to the bars. There are multiple bars on multiple levels, and you have to have the right access to get to the best bars. And sometimes you see some good stuff like the year uh, of Envelope Gate. I remember being in one of the bars and with the La La Land producers before, obviously, the Best Picture category was announced. And that's where, like, you see a lot of the love that you don't see between... I mean, there is love between filmmakers of different films during the award season, but... At the bar, at the very end of award season, at the very last award show, when there's a bar and when there's nothing they can do left to to campaign because the votes have already been in, that's when you see a lot of the love that, if there is love between people, you see it come out there when they run into each other. And now I want to be sure to ask you both about the moment when Green Book won, that I thought there was something really interesting in just the way that Julia Roberts read that envelope. It was almost she had this look on her face like she knew what she was about to set off and that there was going to be. But she did it like so subtly, though, like all the props to Julia Roberts. She's like, Green Book. Like she, you know, like it just the tone in your voice. You're right. But now, Amy, in the theater, did you feel like there was a gasp of confusion, surprise? Were people upset? Like, what was the response from the room when that was announced? Yeah, I mean, it was, I mean, it was interesting, like, re-watching it on TV when I came home, because you hear so much cheering on the telecast, but in the room, what I more experienced was, like, gasps of surprise, many of which were coming from me, and it's weird, because, like, you could be sitting next to people from Universal, or people who are involved in the Green Book production, so no matter what film wins, you can't be like, that was a horrible choice. Or like, you know, what's happening? And I, I was sitting next to someone who was rooting for Green Book. So I realized very quickly, like, rein in whatever reactions to have. Which is why everybody was so amused by Spike Lee's reactions throughout the night, I think. Because that doesn't happen. People obviously go into the Oscars, attending Oscars, having real feelings and strong feelings, as the rest of us do, about what should win and what deserves to win, especially in a year like this. And I think that doesn't typically come out as sharply as it did with people like Spike Lee, who also was having a lot of yeah, fun. Yeah, that's why he's the best. Yeah. Like, I wish people would be less PC. Like Spike Lee actually talked about his feelings about the Green Book win from backstage after the awards. No, I thought it was courtside at the garden. The ref made a bad call. <laughs> As a journalist, I find that refreshing because, oh, yeah. you know, everyone's just politely clapping and then, like, suddenly maybe, you know, I saw that gif circulating on Twitter where Chadwick Boseman turned around and kind of did a, like, really look GIF. to Michael B. Jordan. Yes, um, Amy, GIF. those, like, interactions are few and far between. Yeah, and and backstage, the, the reaction, I mean, when Green Book won the first time, it was followed very shortly after. Like, Peter Farrelly came through triumphantly with his screenplay Oscar. And then literally moments later, Spike Lee came through backstage with his Oscar. And the difference between the two was night and day. When Farrelly came through with the Green Book crew the first time, there was a lot of, you know, like, polite enthusiasm backstage. But when Spike Lee came through with Sam Jackson and the whole Black Klansman crew, 
the feeling backstage was like huge. Like there was huge enthusiastic energy and love for that moment. And so by the end of the night, when Best Picture came along, it was actually strangely subdued in the moments after they won Best Picture. You saw them sort of clear the stage surprisingly quickly. Usually you you end the show and, you know, during the credits, the stage is sworn by people and it's like the end of Saturday Night Live or something. You know, it's like party on stage. Uh, That didn't seem to happen this year. And I think that is in part a reflection of people's, like, who were not involved in the film, people's feelings on, on how this year went. And then the fact that the show didn't have a host this year was something people were talking about a lot, kind of going up to the ceremony. Watching it at home, it did feel like the show was moving very fast for an Oscar show. And did it feel that way in the room? And did that impact, you know, people coming and going from their seats? Did it feel like the pace of it was an impact on the vibe in the room? I mean, it was interesting. Like, there were a few moments in the bar during the commercial breaks where I definitely heard a lot of people being like, is this going well? Like, is this good? Like, people couldn't really decide what the vibe was yet. And it was interesting that on Twitter, the reaction to the host was Oscars being pretty positive. Personally, I found it a little weird. Like, I've been in the Oscars before um, when there was an opening performance to kick off the show, I think the year with Justin Timberlake. And he was, like, down in the audience and walking with the crowd and really amping everyone up. And with Queen, like, again, I felt like this vibe of just politely being into it. And, like, especially from the people in the front who have to act like they're rocking out and stuff, like the celebrities. Because around where I was sitting, which is a little bit further back, but not like the nosebleeds, people weren't really getting into it at all. Yeah. I know, Jen, what was it like being backstage during the Queen performance? The moment that Adam Lambert and Queen walked through, first they showed up, I want to say like three minutes before showtime, strolled through backstage, posed with one of those giant gold Oscar statuettes that are everywhere for photos, and then just like casually breezed backstage to take their place. And you could just then instantly hear Adam Lambert wailing in his, like, warm-up, his vocal I heard that from my feet. Yeah, I was wondering. Like, warming up. It was kind of like, it was like being at a concert for, like, three minutes. And then afterwards, they came off and they were like, yeah, that was great, you know? But then the show started and it was Whatever. Like, Forget yeah. Queen. Tell me about everything about Gaga and Bradley when they walked off stage after yes, that. Yes, here okay. we go. So wait, wait, whoa, 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 whoa. Let's, we're going to, I want to get like the full picture This is the Stars Born podcast. This Mark. is, well, this is the part that we all really want. Amy, I'm going to start with a question for you. Many months ago, Bradley Cooper began talking about he had this vision for how they were going to stage Shallow at the Oscars, well before there were any nominations for A Star is Born at the Oscars. Do you think this staging, and in particular the way in which they came from their seats in the audience to the stage to perform the song, is that the vision? No is that way. what Bradley's been no talking way. about this whole time? No, I, I was thinking about this, Mark, because like I was like, this is your vision? Just like this stripped down, no not way. that it wasn't amazing, but like, this isn't really very unique, right? Especially because, and I wish I had not seen almost Vegas. the Vegas performance yeah. where Gaga brought Bradley up from the audience at her Vegas residency and they sang Shallow because it was basically the same thing as this. And that was so amazing to see for the first well, time. But he was much better because famously in that Vegas performance, he seems a little lost. I think it's good for them that they had the Vegas to practice that through because in the Vegas performance, there's a moment where Bradley Cooper has nothing to do and he's just like, oh, do I stand here? No, I'm going to air guitar. Yeah, and that really yeah. would not have worked So uh, at the Oscars. I also need to address these people online who are yelling at Lady Gaga for being so intimate with Bradley Cooper in front of Arena Shake. Like, what? 
they're performers. It's not just like, people online. It's, I saw it being talked about on The View the next day. Not that I watched The View. But they were talking no about shame. it, you know, wondering if are they or aren't they. And that is, I agree with you, Amy. That's like the most inappropriate direction to take that into. But Jen, from your perspective where you were backstage, yeah. what could you see? And also, you know, we what we saw at home was so intimate and had that startling close up of the two of them at the end, which I would imagine played very differently in the room. No, I mean, backstage, we're all huddled around monitors because thanks to people like Amy Kaufman, uh, we know that the Lady Gaga performance is coming at 7 p.m. So, <laughs> you know, there was a lot of anticipation backstage just to get a, a peek at it back uh, on the monitors. Unlike all the other performers or, or people who are doing bits like Melissa McCarthy coming through with that giant bunny rabbit gown, which took... I counted seven handlers backstage or Jennifer Hudson, who came with her cape gown, which took two handlers. I like to count train handlers. They didn't come backstage first before their performance, because as we all saw, they came out of their seats right onto the stage in such a dramatic fashion. So it took people backstage by surprise, too. And then everybody was crowded around all the available monitors, and it was very emotional backstage because everybody loves The Star is Born, and people were singing along. And by people, I mean me. Yes, I was singing also. But people got misty-eyed. I saw, like, one stagehand turn around, this this woman, and she was like, I'm going to cry. And so people were into it. I felt definitely, (laughs) like, while this was happening, like, I was looking around the room, like, yeah, you idiot. You didn't vote more awards for A Star is Born. Hello. Why didn't they listen? Why didn't they listen to Sean Penn? Anyways, so afterwards, what was really interesting was, first of all, their stage approach was very, you know, unusual. But then afterwards, they came off into the wings, stage right to where we were. And immediately, they just like, Gaga just exploded in like this most beautiful expression of gratitude and joy and they're hugging each other they're being hugged by other people there are a lot of their some of their musical collaborators were also backstage so they're just enveloped immediately in a huge group hug they had barely a second to reset Uh, i think some makeup was touched up and then they they went back out on stage during at least a minute and a half commercial break so people at home didn't see this but we saw them go back on stage and then we heard just immediately this roar of applause from the theater, which, Amy, you can explain what that was. Yeah, basically, they walked out and returned to their seats and got, like, another standing ovation during the commercial break. But, Jen, I wanted to ask you about the reactions Gaga gave in all those moments when she walked off the stage, because some of my other friends who were also covering the show said they felt people mixed reactions to Gaga's, like, over-the-topness. Like, is it authentic or not? And yeah. what is your feeling on that? Like, when she comes out and she's clutching her face, looking at the Oscar as if it's, like, her boyfriend. Oh, you like, mean when you she won? That? that was, so, af- not the performance, but when she came off stage after she won. I mean, I think it's authentic. You see a lot of emotional reactions from people who are coming right off the stage. Whether or not they realize that there will be photographers waiting right there, I think is probably varies by person. But you see a range of emotional, very emotional reactions from people when they have left the stage where all the television cameras are. 
She clutched herself. She posed a little longer, you know, in these moments of great emotion backstage. But it seemed authentic to me. And then she, I mean, when they won for best song, the group of them came out, uh, spilled backstage, just hugging and, and just happy. And her group moved all the way to the hallways where there are yet more people just hanging around and That's where people tend to take more, like, candid selfies. And she brought all of her collaborators down with her to take selfies. And it was, like, a really joyous moment. That's the kind of moment, that's the kind of big, outsized celebration that you kind of want to see backstage rather than somebody who's just like, yeah, thanks, and then walks off and then goes back to the bar or something like that. So for me, I feel like that was one of the biggest expressions of emotion and perhaps relief. And from backstage, Lady Gaga said a little something here about how she and Bradley Cooper prepared for that performance. Right before we did our last uh, rehearsal for this performance of Shallow, he said, let's just drop a little bit of joy. Mm. And I said, okay. And it turns out joy did a whole lot for me. What are your thoughts on that, Amy? Listen, like Lady Gaga does the most. Like she's always so extra. And I know it rubs people the wrong way because she's been like this the entire award season from when she posed on that boat at Venice to like any award she's won where she's cheered up and I'm gotten really emotional. And like, yeah, I mean, she's an actress for sure. But I also think like she's the kind of person who literally did make speeches in front of the telly, as Olivia Coleman would say, when she was a little girl, like wanting to win these kind of prizes. So I definitely don't doubt that it's, it's really meaningful for her. I was so determined to live my dreams and yet there was so much in the way yeah and it's interesting comparing the backstage reaction that she had to the onstage that chemistry that was crackling between her and Bradley Cooper which I I don't get so excited about as a lot of other people do I thought on stage that was great performance and very savvy emotional manipulation as performers. So I am less cynical about anyone's backstage reaction to winning an Oscar. The other big reaction I saw backstage was actually Peter Farrelly, the director of Green Book. When he, he, uh, when it was after the screenplay win, he was first out of the curtains uh, between the stage and backstage, and he emerged in this like big not performative, but he knew that he that it was a huge victory, and he acted like it. He pumped both arms, and I want to say both arms. I'm doing it in front of Mark right now uh, in the studio. Both arms in the air and said, yes, yes, twice, thrusting his Oscar into the air. Um, uh, and I only... You know, point that out because people, you know, people react in different ways to these moments. Uh, but uh, when, say, Hannah Beekler, production designer of Black Panther, came through those same curtains, she also raised her Oscar in the air. But it was such a quiet gesture. It was powerful. It was not showy. Uh, she did not scream, yes! And with that, I think that's a great place for us to uh, to wrap this up. Um, for all future uh, Gaga Cooper truthing needs, um, I'm going <laughs> to call the two of you as, as we need it. And so, Jen, where can people find your work online? Um, you can find me on uh, latimes.com <laughs> and on the tweeters at, at Jen Yamato. And Amy? I am on Twitter at Amy K in LA. And of course, I am at Indie Focus. And so for LA Times Studios and The Real, I'm Mark Olson. Thanks for listening. <laughs>